Uh, well, thanks everyone for, um, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll thank you again after uh, Sally's talk for, uh, for attending the course today. It's been, I, I think, really tremendous. Um, but the best may still be to come. Uh, Sally Hodder is a professor of medicine. Sally has been a real leader in HIV for decades. Um, and not as long as some of us, uh, but, uh, but Sally is wonderful. She's at the, uh, West Virginia University, uh, you know, right in the middle of a lot of the, the issues that she's going to address of uh, the, the coexistence of the HIV and the opioid, uh, uh, epidemics. And, uh, we'll address that and, and, and help bring us up to speed. Sally, take it away. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, HIV and opioids are really deadly synergies. Uh, I have my disclosures are shown on this slide. And the learning objectives are really to talk a bit about the epidemiology, to discuss some of the prevention strategies, uh, uh, to delineate barriers and, and how perhaps some, uh, we can develop some solutions to those. Uh, and then, uh, the organizers asked me to add a COVID slide, and so that is at the very end. Uh, this is no surprise to anyone. The uh, opioid overdose death rate uh, in the 21st century, uh, it started up uh, slowly in the early part of the 21st century, but has skyrocketed since 2013. Noteworthy is that uh, and more recently, we have seen a downtick with several, uh, by several percentage points. Whether that will continue, I think, remains to be seen. Um, if you look at uh, the uh, overdose death rate by age, it's really gone up in all uh, age groups, but most markedly in those groups between the ages of 25 and 64. And if you look back uh, in uh, 1999, uh, the, uh, you can, compared with 2016, you can see the explosive nature of really drug overdose mortality. Um, the dark blue delineates an age-adjusted overdose rate of two, with the dark red representing great than, uh, greater than uh, 30. And as you can see, there's been a sea change uh, in just a 17-year-old a 17-year period with high concentration of mortality in Appalachia uh, and in much of the West. In this slide, I've juxtaposed the uh, overdose, uh, age-adjusted overdose death rate map with that of poverty. And again, you can see with the magenta color on the um, panel on your right, uh, those are counties in which a third to half of residents live in in poverty, and clearly you can see the association of drug overdose deaths with poverty, particularly, again, in Appalachia and some areas of the West. Um, Case and Deaton, uh, two Princeton professors, have coined the label deaths of despair to describe increases in mortality due to drug overdoses, suicides, and alcohol-related disease and these deaths of despair primarily occurred among white, non-Hispanic persons without college degrees. Uh, and ethnographic studies suggest that actually hopelessness and loss of purpose are components of the decreasing life expectancy 
that uh, we now see in the United States. On this slide, uh, you can see that uh, there were really what's described as three waves that early on in the early part of the century, prescription opioids, opioids accounted for most of the overdose deaths uh, with the rise of heroin in 2010. But more recently in 2013, there has been an explosion in synthetic opioids that have uh, really greatly contributed to the mortality of uh, people who inject drugs. Uh, fentanyl in particular is a concern uh, since it is available as a powder. Uh, that means that it can be prepared without heat. Uh, no heat means that uh, there's uh, no uh, inactivation whatsoever of HIV. Uh, also, there's less rinsing of syringes with fentanyl, and so the syringes don't clog. Um, because of fentanyl's quicker onset of action but shorter duration of effect, it's been associated with more uh, frequent injection and needle sharing, uh, which means it could be associated with increased incidence. And you see that, that fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent uh, than uh, morphine, and, and really has this, the fentanyl, and with subsequent other synthetics, carb fentanyl and so forth, has, has really driven uh, the overdose death rate uh, through the ceiling. Now, um, the face of HIV uh, in people who inject drugs has been changing. Um, not shown on this slide, but early on in the HIV epidemic in the 80s and 90s, uh, people who injected drugs accounted for up to 30% of individuals uh, who developed HIV uh, infections. But subsequently, with an understanding of the virus and of harm reduction, this has come down. And you see there, starting in 2010, it has actually uh, continued to come down until 2014 and 15. There was a, uh, a slight uptick in 2015, uh, which uh, uh, came down, and we'll have to see where this goes. But I think noteworthy is that in 2015, there was really an inflection where um, individuals who are white uh, and younger individuals uh, and uh, individuals who lived outside of metropolitan centers were those uh, folks who injected drugs who were most likely uh, to get HIV. And this slide just shows much uh, the same thing for 2018 from the CDC. You see that in men, 41% of those uh, people who injected drugs who developed HIV, um, and in women, 50% of women who acquired HIV, uh, women who injected drugs, were white. And that was really quite a, ch a change. And actually, uh, intravenous drug use among black African Americans or Hispanics uh, in recent years has actually uh, decreased. Um, now, if we look at, um, and, and most, I'm sure everyone has seen this, but in 2014 and 15, there was an outbreak in Scott County, Indiana, uh, 181 cases, 5% of Austin, the, the town there, became infected, 43% of whom were women. Uh, most were uh, injectors of prescription oxymorphone. 92% were co-infected with hepatitis C. Um, but this occurred in the context of 
high unemployment, high poverty rate, uh, and 20% of these individuals were without a high school diploma. Uh, this was a, you know, poster case of the deaths of despair where you see sort of high unemployment, high poverty, uh, really uh, preceding injection drug use. And in this case, what ensued was uh, an HIV outbreak. Um, rural communities, though, have not uh, been the only places where we've had emergence of uh, HIV in populations of folks who inject drugs. In Lowell, Massachusetts, in 2015 through 18, uh, Lowell and Lawrence are two urban areas in northeastern Massachusetts with high rates of both poverty and opioid overdoses. Uh, there was an outbreak Interviews that were conducted in uh, 34 of the 129 cases revealed that all of those individuals actually reported being homeless. Again, 43% of the individuals in that outbreak were women. Uh, moving to Seattle, HIV uh, also emerged in Seattle, Washington, among homeless people who inject drugs. I would draw your attention to the fact that of the women, 73% reported uh, exchanging sex for either drug or uh, money. And I think, you know, we all know that Seattle, Washington has robust treatment and prevention programs, but actually in disenfranchised folks who were homeless, who injected drugs, those programs were not uh, reaching them. And so it really doesn't matter if you're in the middle of West Virginia where there are no programs or in the middle of Seattle, Washington, where the programs don't get to you, uh, the result is the same. And over the past uh, couple years in Cabell County, West Virginia, uh, we have had an HIV outbreak. Uh, actually, that it's 82 cases on the slides, but I uh, checked yesterday and we're up to 93 cases, unfortunately. Again, 92% white, 40% women, uh, about a third of whom reported uh, exchanging sex for money or drugs. And so, you know, in that setting, uh, I, I think what is, is we have to ask ourselves, we, we have tools, we have multiple tools that we know can prevent HIV acquisition among people who inject drugs. So what are some of those tools and how can we use them? Uh, Medication-assisted uh, treatment uh, has been uh, shown to be effective uh, to treat opioid use disorder. Uh, but less than 10% of individuals who have opioid use disorder can attain long-term abstinence without medication-assisted treatment. There are three approved agents shown there, uh, methadone, which is a, a mu receptor uh, agonist, uh, and it is available as an oral tablet or liquid uh, and is required to be dispensed by programs really with certified substance abuse and uh, and mental health uh, experts. Buprenorphine is a partial uh, agonist. Um, there is potential for abuse, and therefore most often it is combined with naloxone that discourages injection drugs, uh, injection due to the precipitation of acute opioid withdrawal. Both methadone and buprenorphine have demonstrated in various uh, trials significant retention in treatment. Uh, decreases in illicit opioid use, and decreases in injection behaviors. But, you know, I don't think that uh, 
Medication-assisted treatment uh, is enough. Uh, in the HPTN study 074, this was a study uh, among 502 participants who were HIV-infected uh, and 806 of their partners. And this study randomized individuals to standard of care, which included antiretroviral therapy uh, and access to medication-assisted treatment, uh, versus uh, those two things plus system navigation and psychosocial counseling. And you can see at week 52, uh, there was a, a higher proportion of suppressed viral load in those who also got uh, system navigation and counseling. Uh, MAT uh, use and retention in the program was higher. And uh, I think most impressively of the partners, uh, there were zero cases of transmission to partners in the intervention arm versus seven cases in the standard of care. And you can look at the probability of death, the Kaplan-Meier shown on the right. And again, you can see that uh, uh, probability of death was higher in standard of care, which really suggests that, again, it's not just having programs that are there. It's really having wraparound services that can engage uh, individuals who inject drugs in care uh, and, and really sort of of holistic care and navigating the system. There are many barriers to uh, MAT, a few are shown here. Uh, it's estimated that one to two million persons in the U.S. have opioid use disorder, yet fewer than half are likely uh, uh, receiving MAT. A waiver, federal waiver is required to prescribe buprenorphine, uh, and though there's been some improvement in recent years with uh, nurse practitioners and others being allowed to obtain a waiver, there still is uh, actually that hurdle to cross. And there's actually been recent studies that individuals who have waivers often don't prescribe to the numbers of patients to which they could. There's limited access to medical care for people who inject drugs. I think uh, an important example uh, is in Kentucky where the um, ACA-mediated uh, Medicaid expansion resulted in uh, providing health care insurance to 87% uh, of persons who use drugs, whereas before the expansion it had been 34. As you know, many states do not have Medicaid expansion, and I think that that is really problematic for individuals who inject drugs, who need care uh, and, and need uh, treatment. There are other structural barriers shown there, uh, not the least of which is stigmatizing environments in clinics. Um, moving on, uh, I think HIV counseling and testing is important. Um, this slide, there's a lot of stuff here, and I apologize, but I wanted to get it all on one slide because I think it's all important. <laughs> Every three years, the CDC conducts the National HIV Behavioral Surveillance, or NHBS, study uh, that surveys people who inject drugs across the U.S. Uh, in uh, 2018, uh, over 11,000 uh, folks who inject drugs uh, were included in this study uh, in 23 U.S. cities, and 6% tested HIV positive. As you know, it's recommended that uh, individuals who inject drugs should be tested for HIV once a year. Uh, actually, the NHBS found that only a roughly half had been tested in the past 12 months. Uh, and um, the other uh, fact was that overall about a third had used a syringe after someone else used it. 
The other thing that I think is important to remember is that condomless sex among women who inject drugs uh, is common. Uh, the NHBS reported that among women, uh, vaginal sex, the condom was used 75% of the time and 27% of the time um, in anal sex. And so when we t- think about, you know, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, we'll talk a minute about a study in injection drug users, but I think we should not forget that actually, uh, I think sex, sexual transmission is, is extremely important among persons who inject drugs. Um, there's lots of bar- barriers to HIV testing, uh, lack of healthcare access, as we've discussed, poverty, stigma, you know, just, just really going into a clinic where, you know, the environment and the um, atmosphere may not be one that, that welcomes uh, individuals who inject drugs, and also chaotic li- lifestyles with high uh, rates of homelessness, I think, make it very difficult to you know, really get regular HIV testing and access harm reduction services. Moving on to another uh, tool in the toolkit to prevent uh, HIV, our syringe uh, services programs. Uh, This is a meta-analysis of 12 studies that assess the risk of HIV transmission. Uh, In these 12 studies, there was more than uh, 12,000 patient years and you can see that overall the risk was decreased. Uh, when they actually used what they thought were the highest quality studies, there were six of them, it actually decreased the risk of HIV acquisition by 60%. Um, a recent study uh, by Monica uh, Ruiz and her colleagues um, assessed HIV surveillance data from Baltimore that's shown in this slide from 1985 to 2013. And as you can see, in 1994, Maryland law changed, enabling syringe uh, services. Um, and the uh, study showed that uh, because of that, uh, 18, more than almost 1,900 HIV cases were averted over 10 years. And the return on investment was almost $47 million. Uh, this same group also did a similar study in Philadelphia, which even showed greater numbers of HIV cases averted and uh, uh, larger returns on investment. Yet, despite data and science, uh, you know, the syringe service programs are not getting there. In fact, there was a recent uh, a couple years ago, uh, Dr. Gonsalves and his uh, colleagues looked and, uh, at Scott County, Indiana, and said, what if uh, syringe services had been effectively available um, in 2013? Actually, the uh, Scott, Indiana outbreak, uh, which actually, by the way, is now up to 215 persons, would have been less than 56. And in fact, if the intervention had been uh, implemented in 2011, there would have been very, very few cases. There probably wouldn't have been an outbreak. Um, This is uh, after the Scott County outbreak, the CDC uh, looked at counties and and came up with 220 counties, uh, several of which are in West Virginia, uh, that are vulnerable, that, that really had characteristics that would suggest that an HIV outbreak or hepatitis C outbreak was uh, likely. 
Uh, those are shown in blue here. Uh, the green is show, shows the um, location of syringe exchange programs, and the orange is both. And you can see that there are many, many places where there are vulnerable counties, and yet where syringe service programs are not available. Moreover, if you look at the legality, you'll see the uh, red states uh, shown there. Uh, syringe service programs as of 2019 are illegal. Uh, and actually, if you look at the light blue, uh, like West Virginia, they are uh, locally uh, uh, permitted. But in fact, in West Virginia, uh, I'll just tell you a little bit of story there. So the um, there was a very good syringe services program that was operating in the Charleston uh, local health department, uh, Charleston's capital, West Virginia. They were serving 5,000 clients, and it was uh, actually forced to close. Uh, subsequently, you may not have read about this, but there are increasing cases there. I looked yesterday, and it's up to 31. Huntington uh, does have an active syringe exchange, but they have been under pressure and there has been a, a move to uh, actually have them uh, revise some of the things they do to make it a little more, uh, in my opinion, difficult uh, for clients. Um, and another syringe uh, exchange program over in the north, uh, northern part of the state in Clarksburg recently was forced to close. There was a bill introduced in the West Virginia legislature last year. Thank God it didn't pass. But the bill that was introduced actually would have made it illegal to have syringe exchange uh, programs in the state of West Virginia. state of West Virginia has the highest overdose death rate. I mean, opioid use uh, is a huge problem. We have ongoing HIV outbreaks. We have the science that syringe services programs work, and yet, you know, I think that there is not the political will to really uh, to move forward. And in fact, the political will is moving the other way. Uh, and we shall see what happens in the future with that bill. Moving now to uh, uh, PrEP. Uh, there's been one study of uh, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis among uh, people who inject drugs. It was done several years ago in Bangkok, enrolling more than 2,400 HIV uh, uninfected persons, 20% of whom were women. They were randomized one-to-one to, -one to tenofovir versus placebo, uh, and there was a 49% overall relative reduction of HIV incidence. Uh, tenofovir was detected uh, in two-thirds of participants in the tenofovir group, uh, and in those participants, the HIV reduction was 74%. And though the trial was not powered to assess efficacy by subgroup, I'm always really um, interested in the fact that actually among women uh, who constituted 20% of the study, that the efficacy was higher. It was 78%. And in, in Dr. Buckbinder's uh, session, we were talking that, yes, you know, tenofovir pre-exposure prophylaxis works in women if they take it. And I think uh, in this study of uh, women who inject drugs, it clearly demonstrated efficacy. Um, this study has been, um, you know, sometimes criticized uh, for the fact that uh, actually syringe sharing decreased from 18% at baseline to 2% uh, 
uh, 12 months later, uh, questioning the generalizability of this data. Um, also, you can see on this Kaplan-Meier of the probability of HIV infections occurring. The placebo is in blue, tenofovir in red. And you can see that the curves did not uh, diverge uh, until month 36. Uh, and it is um, not, it remains unexplained, though the uh, investigators in that study have used various statistical methods. And they say that, you know, really this is, you know, when you do these methods, there was not a change in the efficacy over uh, the uh, uh, observation period. I think, though, the thing to understand is uh, this has been the only study conducted of pre-exposure prophylaxis among people who inject drugs. I think that it's, though, you know, we pointed out earlier that, that uh, one needs to consider the fact that people who inject drugs are also at risk from uh, of sexual acquisition of HIV. Uh, I, I think it's going to be critically important for the new agents to really include people who inject drugs uh, in the studies to, to really have an understanding, do they work? Obviously, if you're sharing syringes, you know, it is a different route of, of HIV transmission. Um, uh, but right now, this is the only study we have. There's been concern about adherence to PrEP. The Bangkok study was quite good, but other studies uh, have shown uh, poor adherence, particularly among individuals who are younger, uh, women, uh, individuals who used heroin or stimulants, uh, and meth is on the rise. In fact, uh, much of the fentanyl is actually laced with meth these days. Um, Adherence, PrEP adherence was uh, worse among uh, individuals who had mental health comorbidities, transactional sex, uh, and homelessness. And those are just, just the populations where we've seen outbreaks of HIV. Barriers to PrEP, there are many. Uh, I've discussed uh, one of them, but another is low awareness among uh, people who inject drugs. In fact, in the Cabell County outbreak, there was a recent study, a qualitative study, um, that uh, looked at um, awareness of PrEP, and actually 69% of those folks had not previously heard of PrEP. Um, there were issues of the healthcare access, chaotic lifestyles, and really, uh, I don't think we can underestimate the unwillingness of some healthcare providers to prescribe PrEP to persons who inject drugs. I'm not going to read this slide, but I did want to make you aware that uh, in January, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine uh, had a very good report about how we can improve uh, opioid use disorder treatment and infectious disease services. Uh, and the bottom line is that we need to integrate wrap services around uh, folks who are at risk and really connect the health and criminal justice uh, systems. It is really worth a read. The first couple of pages outline all the barriers and propose solutions, uh, and, and it, it's really quite thoughtful. Now, turning to, to COVID-19 uh, and opioids, a pandemic and an epidemic collide. You know, it's, it's unfortunate just at the time, in my opinion, that, that we were beginning in this country to coalesce around, you know, addressing, effectively addressing um, opioid use disorder, 
drug overdose, uh, the first slide I showed showed a tick down. Uh, this is just the time now that we have COVID. And, and my worry is, is that in many ways it may make things much worse. The organizers uh, asked me to, uh, you know, give a slide about what, what will the impact be. The, the true answer to that is we don't know, but it's likely to not be good. Uh, I think the impact will be at multiple levels, housing instability and incarceration, uh, both of which are issues for people who inject drugs, increase the risk of uh, COVID transmission. Uh, challenges have uh, to medication, uh, you know, getting medications for opioid use disorder, though I will say federal requirements during the pandemic for methadone uh, procurement have been relaxed. Uh, and the DEA is permitting teleprescribing for buprenorphine. I think harm reduction services uh, are going to are have been more difficult to access. There have been some that have had to close down because of uh, many of their staff and clients uh, got infected. Um, and um, at the uh, IAS conference, uh, the Fenway um, Community Clinic presented data. Now these were not just in. Um, people who injected drugs, it was overall. But new prescriptions from January through April decreased 72%, and PrEP refills lapsed 191%, which does not bode well. I think care may be deprioritized for people who inject drugs due to healthcare institutions, perhaps having stigma, but also the overwhelming of health institutions that we've seen in many parts of this country. Um, and, and also isolation for people who inject drugs or anyone with substance use disorder may really preclude the social support so critical to recovery. And then finally, I think the severe economic downturn, stress, anxiety, hopelessness will likely worsen the opioid epidemic. Those are just the things that actually we have associated with why we got into the opioid epidemic in the first place. So I, uh, I think this is, is really going to be a critical time, and I think that, that more attention needs to be paid for how we can mitigate some of these negative effects among people who inject drug. So in conclusion, I think the epidemiologic patterns of HIV acquisition I've demonstrated have shifted in recent years. Science around uh, medication-assisted treatment, syringe exchange are established, yet implementation is lacking. Women constitute nearly half of recent HIV outbreaks associated with people who inject drugs, yet focused studies, particularly among rural women, are lacking. New antiretrovirals for HIV treatment and prevention with frequent dosing, with infrequent dosing, are, I think, really promising for folks uh, who inject drugs, particularly those who may be homeless, where, you know, you can't keep a jar of pills. But studies in these populations are needed and finally, I think effectively addressing the root of the opioid epidemic is critically important, but elusive. And I will stop there. Thank you. I miss the clapping that otherwise we would hear at the end of each of these <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Sally. That was spectacular. Um, we, we have only a few minutes uh, left for questions. There are a, a few on the, on the, on the um, Q&A. Um, and some of them are just philosophy, right? Why do the authorities make it so difficult to prescribe MAT when doctors can so easily prescribe narcotics for other things? I, yeah, I, I, wish, I, I wish I could say the world made sense, but it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you know, I, I, though I will say, I mean, I, I do think 
that there has been a stigma that, you know, substance use disorders, you know, are a um, illness like any other. I mean, you know, but, you know, we've looked at the circuits and so forth. And yet I don't think even certainly among many of our politicians who make the rules, and I think among some healthcare professionals, I think some people still believe this is a weakness of character or bad choices. And I think we really need to get out of it. And once you get out of that mindset, this is a medical disease. We can treat it and we need to facilitate treatment, not make it harder. I mean, in what, you know, it's not like it, they make it harder to get cancer treatment, right? Right. So um, another broad question, you mentioned in one of your slides that uh, a program where, where standard of care was compared to a more aggressive intervention, including system uh, navigation. Uh, the question is, what? tell me more a little about system navigation. What, what did that entail in that study? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, and, and you can look at the paper, but it was basically – you know, I mean, I even think it's hard just if you're trying to get an appointment at XYZ clinic, you know, making the appointment, getting transportation to the clinic. Um, if there's available, you know, how do you sign up for Medicaid if, in fact, Medicaid is available to you? Those were some of the things that the the navigators uh, did. And I think also it was a problem solver for individuals. And I think that that's what we, we really need. I think that healthcare systems don't make it easy. Sally, um, this is my question. Uh, we, we've heard intermittently for a long time about the possibility of safe injection facilities. I don't remember you saying anything about that. Is, can you update us on we had talked about Philadelphia, Seattle, San Francisco, and obviously Vancouver. Any any more comments? No, I I think the political wins in the United States, um, uh, and there was a lot of talk about Philadelphia. And to my knowledge, maybe somebody else knows more. That has has not um, happened. Uh, and again, I I think it makes so much sense because a lot of the reason that you have overdose deaths are because people you know, sort of are alone, they inject, it's been laced with, with God knows what, nobody's there with naloxone, uh, and even though there have been lots of great programs to, you know, increase naloxone uh, distribution, if you're alone, there's nobody there to give it to you. Not to mention the fact that safe injection uh, facilities can really engage folks into the system, into MAT, you know, sort of, of clean syringes. I, I just don't think we have the political will. I mean, you know, my God, you know, we have politicians that go around and say, well, you know, people are older. If they get COVID, it's just what happens. We have to open up stuff. I mean, I, I, I really think that is the issue. And I think until there is, you know, more value to the individual and an understanding that actually the science can really help prevent these things, and we all need to work together, including the politicians and the healthcare workers. I, I don't, I don't think safe injection facilities are going to happen. Certainly not in my lifetime, unless something changes in West Virginia. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I'm sorry to say, um, I'm just going to make a comment. You talked about the data. The data we saw at, at uh, IAS 2020 was was striking in terms of the impact of COVID on. You know, all of the ending the HIV epidemic and PrEP uh, uh, progress that have been made. Um, I've also heard that there is a real concern that some, same things are going on on uh, the global HIV um, treatment programs, PEPFAR and the rest and the Global Fund. 
the competition for resources um, yeah. and, and the other disruptions are really threatening to set us back um, substantially and, and all the gains that we've made for the last 15, 20 years or so. Um, people like your talk, Sally, um, uh, and they're, they're cheering for you. And, uh, I think that's, I think that's, uh, great. Um, one question, maybe this might be the last question is, uh, one, one participant wants to know if you could remember just one, one skill that, uh, that an HIV provider who's engaged and, and already prescribing PrEP and naloxone, what, what, what skill would, would you recommend we think about acquiring? Well, I, you know, it's not for me to say, but, but I do think in, in, um, if you're taking care of populations of folks with opioid use disorder, having MAT, uh, in the HIV clinic, and that's not only getting the waiver, being able to prescribe it. I think MAT, it, we say medication-assisted treatment. I think it's more than that. I think you really need, you know, sort of competent health, uh, mental health professionals, uh, you know, sort of social workers and so forth. But but I think it's very important that we really sort of have one-stop shop for all this stuff. Uh, Sally, thanks so much. Our other question was uh, uh, recordings of this, and I think we'll get up to that um, in my comments. So, Sally, I want to really thank you. The audience loved your loved your talk, as, as did I. Thanks.